As Fanny could not doubt that her answer was conveying a real disappointment, she was rather in expectation, from her knowledge of Miss Crawford's temper, of being urged again. And though no second letter arrived... I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week, we're finishing up Mansfield Park with chapters 46 to 48. And it's your turn to go first with a hundred-word summary. All right. The news of Mariah's elopement with Henry followed by Julius with Yates, reaches Fanny in Portsmouth. Sir Thomas sends Edmund to bring her with Susan back to Mansfield. Edmund tells her of his final meeting with Mary and the irreconcilable differences between them. Sir Thomas reflects on the failures of his education of his children. The author gives a summary of Maria and Henry's affair and separation Julia's and Tom's reconciliation with their father, Mr. Rushworth's divorce, Mariah's establishment with Mrs. Norris, Henry's regrets, and the Grant's move to Westminster. Edmund and Fanny marry, Dr. Grant dies, and Edmund and Fanny settle at Mansfield Rectory. Okay, well, I've covered a lot of the same bits and sometimes using the same words as you. Fanny hears that Mariah has run off with Henry Crawford. Edmund writes to Fanny confirming it and also saying that Julia has eloped with Gates. He says he will come to take Fanny back to Mansfield and Susan can come too. Edmund and Mary are permanently separated as she doesn't treat the affair as seriously as he does. Sir Thomas reflects on what was wrong in his daughter's upbringing. The final chapter wraps up all the plot lines. Mariah ends up living with Mrs Norris and Mary with Mrs Grant. Edmund and Fanny marry and after Dr. Grant's death, they live at Mansfield Parsonage. Okay, so did you want to start? I would like to start with the emphasis in that very first part of Chapter 46 of Fanny mourning for the springtime. Yeah. Of how she just is so miserable in Portsmouth yeah. at missing it. And then the other thing that I think also comes out there is something that sort of supports what Margaret Drabble had to say in the 1990s. She did an introduction to Mansfield Park. She was sort of convinced that the whole of Mansfield Park is based on the contrast between the country and the city, you know, very traditional literary focus, which is on the difference between town and country. But my feeling is is it's only one of, there are a whole lot of things where... Where she does a contrast. Because as you were saying that, I was thinking, well, you've got the London-Mansfield contrast, which is in attitudes, but you've also got the Mansfield-Portsmouth contrast, which is completely different from the Mansfield-London contrast. Yes, and there are sort of others, this, you know, the contrast between the principled people and the unprincipled people. Yeah. That was just what I was going to say is no... All the people that say, this is what the book is about, I'm still saying no to them. It's it's one of the things in the book. Yes. But it's only one. And she does it beautifully and you go away thinking it, just as you go away thinking about the difference between Mary Crawford's society in London and what's been happening at Mansfield. Mm. Just going back to the Portsmouth bit, there's this amazing description of life at Portsmouth where... Sunshine appeared a totally different thing in a town and in the country. Here its power was only a glare, a stifling, sickly glare, serving but to bring forward stains and dirt that might otherwise have slept. There was neither health nor gaiety in sunshine in a town. 
She sat in a blaze of oppressive heat in a cloud of moving dust, and her eyes could only wander from the walls marked by her father's head to the table cut and notched by her brother's, where stood the tea board never thoroughly cleaned, the cups and saucers wiped in streaks, the milk a mixture of moats floating in thin blue, and the bread and butter growing every minute more greasy than even Rebecca's hands had first produced it. It's really, you know, really quite visceral. Yes, the awfulness of Portsmouth is being made so strongly yeah. there, isn't it? Yeah. But after that, I suppose the thing that I feel one most wants to talk about is this whole question of how Jane Austen looks at that elopement and particularly how different it is in a way from it, what it was with Lydia and Wickham. Mm. There's one thing, you know, we can say, and I think we said it before, that there's a real, there's a real difference here when they talk about this as a crime. They've got their own moral point. Yeah. That this is something the law jumps on. Yeah. It doesn't jump on elopements. If people go off and live together, well, I think, too bad. But it's so different. And the extent to which they're upset is so different. Mm. One thing I'd like to get in is the response of her father. Yeah. Mr Price, when he reads it in the newspaper, (laughs) and he says... But by God, if she belonged to me, I'd give her the rope's end as long as I could stand over her. It's not a very nice picture, but it is a very, very strict sense of morality. I mean, who knows what his actual personal morality was. But then he says, it might all be a lie, but so many fine ladies were going to the devil nowadays that way that there was no answering for anybody. Like I said, there's a difference between Mansfield and London, there's a difference between Mansfield and Portsmouth, but he's also highlighting the difference between Portsmouth and London. (laughs) Yes, well, he's highlighting the superior morality (laughs) of Portsmouth to London, where these things are up to a point accepted. So given that he's... He drinks too much, he swears, he's unkind to Fanny. He's not exactly got the high moral ground. Well, he thinks he has. Yeah. The way the characters in Pride and Prejudice talked about Lydia was almost the way Mary Crawford is talking about Mariah and Henry. You know, foolish Lydia. And what it does to them socially. The other thing that turns up with this is this talk about punishment. Yeah. And when Lydia eloped, There was no question Lydia must be punished. I mean, Mr Collins thought she should be punished, but the Bennets didn't. Mm. What they want to do is get her right, get her going again. Yeah. You know, we have got this difference between a simple elopement where neither of them has made any vows to anyone else. Mariah has made vows. Well, actually, Julia and Yates is a simple elopement, whereas Lydia and Wickham, they initially thought it was a simple elopement and that was bad. But then they learned they're together in London without being married and that's worse. Yes. But on the other hand, they don't talk about it as a crime. They don't say it needs to be punished. None of those things are there. And then I thought one thing that really seems to suggest that in Mansfield Park they've moved into a much stricter code. Edmund is so fussed that Mary Crawford wants them to marry. No, he says, why would they want Mariah to marry Henry Crawford? Because, you know, what they now know about his character. Well, you know, compared with Wickham's character, (laughs) Henry Crawford is pretty white. Yeah. The other point I was going to make 
is there's some real generosity in Mary's approach. She doesn't say, this is my brother, my God, he's made a mess of things, get away from her, ditch her. Yeah. She's saying we must put all our efforts into forcing Henry to marry her. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I just wanted to talk about, and another moment where I really dislike Edmund, when they're going back to Mansfield from Portsmouth and he says to Fanny in a low but very expressive tone, no wonder, you must feel it, you must suffer. How a man who had once loved could desert you. But yours, your regard was new compared with Fanny, think of me. It's, like, <laughs> it's all about him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, then we have another conversation between Edmund and Fanny about Mary where Edmund is still defending Mary and I think basically defending her rightly in that he's saying, where, Fanny, should we find a woman whom nature had so richly endowed? Spoilt, spoilt. He's still basically saying Mary is a nice person who's been damaged. When Fanny says that what Mary said to Edmund was cruel, he says, we differ there. No, hers is not a cruel nature. I do not consider her as meaning to wound my feelings. The evil lies yet deeper in her total ignorance, unsuspiciousness, there being such feelings. Well, at least to me, that is, well, that's well, Mary. Well, it, well, he's put his finger on what's the problem. He wants her to know about those feelings. Yeah, and then the other thing he says about Mary is, hers are faults of principle, Fanny, of blunted delicacy and a corrupted, vitiated mind. <laughs> Which is pretty awful. <laughs> Which is pretty awful. But again, the reflection is more on London and her friends than on her. Yes. He's still excusing her. Jane Austen's final chapters are often a wrap-up and often don't have dialogue. But I think what makes this one, to me, different to some of the others is there's so much explicit moral judgment being made and so much statement of where things went wrong. Yes. And you're really basically being told this is what you need to think of people rather than just being told this is what happened. But it's a wrap-up also, of course, of the sort of the multiple plots. You've got the... Abandoned orphan with Fanny. Yeah. You've got the sort of standard romance plot. Yeah. And you've got that cautionary tale of Sir Thomas. This chapter keeps on coming back to Sir Thomas. Five separate times, sometimes really long, sometimes shorter, we get Sir Thomas's reflections on stuff, on what he did wrong at a practical level or on the morals or on how to bring up children. But interspersed with that is the more practical descriptions of what happened in the past or what happened in the future, which is more like a Jane Austen final chapter. But it keeps coming back to Sir Thomas's reflection, which is not something that normally happens in a final chapter. He knows he's done the wrong thing and this is why he's done the yeah. wrong thing. But I think basically the gist of his thinking is that firstly he blames himself for letting Mariah marry Mr Rushworth. That's a specific event he blames himself for. But then he generally reflects on their upbringing and how... He let them be a combination of indulged by Mrs Norris and therefore he tried to counter that by being strict but all that did was distance himself from his daughters and miss the fact that their education was not giving them this principle. I think the thing that really set everything wrong was him going to Antigua at that particular stage in their lives. Yeah. They're moving out of their teens into their adult life and then he goes away, Mrs Norris gets totally out of hand, Yeah, more or less infantilises Lady Bertram even more, but also encourages 
the girls to do the wrong thing and get the wrong attitude. Yeah. Well, you know, to move from Sir Thomas's attitude. But if he hadn't gone to Antigua, definitely Mariah would not have married Mr Rushworth. Yeah, it would never have got to an engagement. The thing in this final chapter that I find a problem, I really find her wrapping up of what happened between Mariah and Mr Crawford. We don't get told enough about what is happening to get a real picture. All we've got is the gossip column account and you've got to try and, you know, use your imagination probably more than should be demanded of you. In this final chapter, she does fairly explicitly state what happens. I thought your concern was that you don't find Henry's motivations as depicted no, in that. I find it very difficult. We're not given enough information to make mm-hmm. it satisfactory. Uh-huh. You know, we don't know why did she have to escape rather than just have a quiet affair with him. Yeah. Was she already having an affair with him? And that's what the servant saw. I think and, so. Yes, but see, that's the sort of thing that's absent. We are told that um, her passions were greater than Henry had realised. Yes. Henry thought he was having a flirtation or maybe even thought he was just having some sex on the side, but he didn't realise that her passions were actually much, much greater than that. Yes. And so to her it was more than just a bit on the side. To her it became everything. We have to think that the servants were sort of, they had picked up on the fact. Yeah. And she feels it's the time to rush off with Henry. Yeah. And she turns up and pressures Henry. Yeah. One thing I'd like to say about the conclusion, Mm -hmm. until recently I wasn't at all convinced that Tom Bertram, as Jane Austen has shown him, was really likely to reform in the way she says. Yeah. But recently I've started thinking, no, perhaps it wasn't just based on what Jane Austen saw as Tom's psychology, Mm -hmm. but on a view that was quite broadly held by the landed classes of her day. I get this picture of the attitude of the landed gentry from a book set more than 100 years (laughs) later, A Dance to the Music of Time by Anthony Pohl. And in it, he gives a picture of the attitude of the older members of the landed gentry to heirs. An eldest son, he writes, by no means beyond the reach of criticism, was at the same time excluded from the utter and absolute public disapproval which might encompass younger sons. No one could tell how an eldest son might turn out after he succeeded. Succeeded to the title or the property or whatever. Yes. He then quotes an upper-class character from his book who used to talk of the classic case of Henry V and Falstaff. That makes us what I think is quite an interesting point. Yeah. What do you feel about Edmund falling in love with Fanny? I started off thinking, oh, God, you know, but actually I felt she treats it sufficiently ironically for you not to think she's saying, oh, yes, and finally everything came off (laughs) out all right. I suppose it's because she's got a little bit more irony about it, it's maybe slightly better done than Marianne and Colonel Brandon. But I do have to say I was 15 when I first read Mansfield Park 
Yeah. So I'd been waiting the whole novel for the big scene of Edmund realising he's fallen in love with Fanny and we don't get it and I was no. really annoyed about that oh, right. because it was the first Jane Austen I'd read so I didn't realise Jane Austen doesn't really do those big romantic scenes yes. but it was so, so undercut. You have to admit that Edmund is marrying Fanny on the rebound. When you're not like 15-year-old me looking for the big romance scene, it is actually funny when she says, I purposely abstain from dates on this occasion that everyone may be at liberty to fix their own, aware that the cure of unconquerable passions and the transfer of unchanging attachments must vary much as to time in different people. Yes. So it is funny. I suppose the last thing I wanted to comment on, I think it was drawn to my attention by the talking of Jane Austen people, but reading it now I just can't believe I missed it before, is that the death of Dr Grant occurred just after Evan and Fanny had been married long enough to begin to want an increase of income and feel their distance from the paternal abode and inconvenience. Now, in the same way I didn't get the Olive Branch reference in Mr Collins's letter in Pride and Prejudice, oh. I totally missed the fact that that obviously means Fanny is pregnant. Well, no, I took it was probably the second or third child. Yeah. <laughs> uh, see, I thought the bit about distance from the paternal abode might mean the first child, so by being closer to home they get a bit more support. Either way, it means they're having a family. Yes, Actually, something else I was wanting to say, in the academic criticism that was current when I was first thinking seriously about Mansfield Park, those groups like yeah. Tony Tanner and Marvin Mudrick, and I think somebody refers to them as the Tory ones, who were asserting that the theme of Mansfield Park was the triumph of this morality principle discourse running through them against the values of high society represented by the Crawfords and they were twisting themselves in knots trying to demonstrate that Mansfield or Fanny or perhaps even Sir Thomas symbolised these values. But I'm more and more convinced that the power of Jane Austen does not lie in major philosophic themes but in Jane Austen's wonderful power to be the opposite what she criticised in the novel Self-Control, which, she said, was without anything of nature or probability in it. And much of the charm of Mansfield Park is that the plot is driven forward by what she calls natural, possible, everyday things, full of fascinating contrasts, besides principle versus lack of principle, spring in town and country, London versus county society, Wealth versus poverty, a well-ordered house versus a ramshackle one, folly versus vice. But I don't think we can identify any of these as the themes of the novel. She is choosing to display them in an archetypal kind of plot that gives the reader a satisfactory sense of closure. In the case of Mansfield Park, it is this tale of the abandoned orphan who engages our sympathies from the start, which leads into the standard romance plot where the heroine gains the prize of the man she loves in spite of all the obstacles, in themselves interesting, in the Jane Austen way, in her path. Mm, yeah. Okay, so, favourite sentences. Some of the sentences I'd highlighted as my possible favourite we've ended up reading out earlier, so I'll go with this one. Just because it's just another example of it's not side-splittingly funny, but it's just the amount of cleverness in a simple sentence. 
As nothing was really left for the decision of Mrs. Price or the good offices of Rebecca, everything was rationally and duly accomplished and the girls were ready for the morrow. (laughs) I just love the way it basically says that because Fanny and Susan could do it all themselves, it was done properly. (laughs) Well, the one I've chosen is one of the ones that makes me feel a lot nicer about Fanny and Edmund getting together, even though, as you say, it's sort of hidden. It's just the sort of quite charming way in which Jane Austen, the irony she's using as they get together. Edmund has decided he wants to marry Fanny. Yeah. And he says, She was, of course, only too good for him. But as nobody minds having what is too good for them, he was very steadily earnest in the pursuit of the blessing and it was not possible that encouragement from her should be long wanting. That was another one I had highlighted as a possible. <laughs> yes. She is being so sly about both of them. Yes. <laughs> and somehow it was that tone that made me really enjoy that particular way of bringing the two of them together. Yeah. If it had been more earnest, yeah. you would have thought, oh, no. Yeah. But like that, mm. I liked it. So for this last episode on Mansfield Park, we're finally getting to our in-depth discussion on Fanny Price. I think it's safe to say that Fanny Price is Jane Austen's most divisive heroine. One thing I wanted to start with is refer to an article that was published in Persuasions, the Jasna Journal, in 2014 called A History of the Fanny Wars by Linda Troost and Sarah Greenfield. The mention of Fanny Wars in the title is a term that was coined during the life of the Austin L email listserv, which was sort of from the 90s to the early 2010s, where any time someone wrote an opinion about Fanny Price, it descended into a battleground of the pro-Fanny and the anti-Fanny people arguing about her. And even going right back to the start, the opinions that Jane Austen collected from her friends and family on Mansfield Park, some of them said they loved Fanny, some of them said they hated Fanny, Mrs Austen said she thought she was insipid. So yeah, right from the start there were different opinions and this article, A History of the Fanny Wars, also comments that in the mid-20th century there were a number of really significant critical articles written about Mansfield Park in general, but all of these male commentators came down very firmly on the anti-Fanny side. And they, of course, these were the people who were sort of holding the microphone. Yes. So the ones they identify are, in 1940, D.W. Harding said that Fanny had a distinct tendency to priggishness, and he later described her as a dreary, debilitated, priggish goody-goody, and a central failure in a potentially very fine novel. I think potentially is a bit mean too because I think it is a very fine novel. Yes. Then in 1954, C.S. Lewis said that Fanny failed through insipidity, so he was clearly agreeing with Mrs. Austen. Lionel Trilling made the clearly untrue statement that nobody has found it possible to like the heroine of Mansfield Park. And then in 1957, Kingsley Amos described her as a monster of complacency and pride who, under a cloak of cringing self-abasement, dominates and gives meaning to the novel. And, you know, even today, people are still arguing about Fanny Price. And I think of the anti-Fanny camp, there are sort of three main areas they focus on. One is sort of she's priggish, she's goody-goody, she's too good. Mm. One is that she's a doormat. Yeah. And then there's also 
people putting her next to Elizabeth Bennet and finding her wanting. Yeah. And I've actually got some notes where I address all three of those points, but I've now been talking, so I'll throw it over for what you've got to say on it. Well, what I, I was going to say was more give a personal response to not so much to the critics as my response to Fanny. Yeah. And from the start, I was very pro-Fanny just because of the clever way in which Jane Austen presents her, mm. starting off with the abandoned orphan plot. So you're on side with this heroine and you move on to Fanny falling in love with Edmund and again you move into a Cinderella plot. Yeah. So whether you approve of Fanny or not, you want her to marry Edmund, or I did, yeah. from the start. <laughs> yeah. And in a way, right up to this reading, I'd been very much a pro-Fanny person, particularly liking something I'd picked out of Lionel Trilling, where he talks about her having a grace of difficulty, unlike the grace of ease that Elizabeth Bennet had. By which he means that being good doesn't actually come naturally to her. She has to work at it. She has to work yeah. at it, and that's what you see Fanny doing. Yeah. And I like that with Fanny because it's internal. Yeah. You have this really nice picture of the person who wants to be good and doesn't find it all that easy. Yeah. That's actually, interestingly, something they quote in this Jasna article is someone saying... I agree with you that strong morals and true goodness are traits to be valued, but I would find Fanny more appealing if she had to struggle with staying true to her strong morals and true goodness, as the rest of us do. And I think that person just hasn't read the book very closely. I think that's what you do see all the way through. And maybe that's what lead people to say Fanny's too good, because what you are seeing is her thinking about being good all the time. And that gets up their nose. But it just kind of conflates into, you spend all this time thinking about it, therefore you're too good for me. Yes, I don't want to be with people who are always thinking about, am I being good? Yeah. How should I be judged? Yeah. And also, in fact, Jane Austen doesn't have her actually totally living up to her vow. She has bad feelings, but she doesn't actually criticise she is really censorious of Mary at the end, far too censorious. And she actually does that thing to try and make Edmund think that Mary had only come back to him because Tom might die. Yeah. And I don't think we can believe that about no. Mary. And I'm not sure that Fanny believed it either. Yeah. But anyway, that's what I've always felt about Fanny. And definitely I still appreciated her for that. But on this reading, and I think I've mentioned it before, there were these two aspects of Fanny that I felt were Jane Austen's fault and put you off rather than you put you on side with Fanny. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I really got irritated by was her talking about Fanny's soft heart. I don't think we've yet read out the most extreme one of those, so I'll say it. Fanny's disposition was such that she could never even think of her Aunt Norris in the meagerness and cheerlessness of her small house without reproaching herself for some little want of attention to her when they had been together. Which Fanny might think that, but it's not her heart going out to Aunt <laughs> Norris. She's thinking, this is something I ought to be caring about. Yes. I ought to be thinking about Aunt Norris. Yeah. And then there's this other thing which I'd never noticed before but that irritated me about Fanny this time where she's always worrying about 
you know, what will people think she's thinking? Yeah. That was what I see as the kind of thing that could put you off mm. or it started to put me yeah. off. But, you know, I got over it. Once I was getting inside Fanny's head, I didn't yeah. worry. She she worried about everything. Why wouldn't she worry about it? Yeah. Well, again, I think it's very psychologically believable. Her whole life, she's just been forced into this massive inferiority complex. She's always been a second-class citizen. So she's obviously always going to be worried about what people will think of her. The other side that you see of Fanny that makes her interesting and makes her very good is that this has turned her into such a noticing sort of person. Mm. We see that she is not so much soft-hearted as noticing, very aware of what is going on, very aware of what other people are feeling. She notices what Julia is feeling about Mr Crawford. Mm. She doesn't necessarily, you know, weep for Julia, but Mm. she notices. Mm. And the other thing about her is she really likes doing things for people. Yeah. She does it naturally. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is that charge of her being a prig. And I think at the end of the day, yes, she is down on some things that we today would think are pretty inoffensive, pretty much harmless fun. And if that makes her a prig, well, it does. I can personally just accept that and move on, but I can see that for some people it would just really get their backs up. The thing is, though, and we talked about this earlier, we still see Fanny quietly having fun. She gets so much enjoyment out of the dancing, even though she's not really physically up to it. And she likes her stargazing and she likes her books and she likes her geraniums. She's not this complete killjoy that some people sort of see because it is kind of overwhelmed with all the internal agonising and moralising. Yes. Although I do think, and I, I said it when we were talking about the theatricals, in this reading, I've changed my perspective of her attitude there because initially I was sort of thinking, good for you, Fanny, standing by your principles. You believed all the way through that they shouldn't be doing this and you didn't take part. And that's not what was happening. She was freaked out by the idea of having to act, but she was she still disapproved of it, but she nonetheless was enjoying what she was seeing and what she was doing. Fanny was as much a part of it as anyone, the only difference being she wasn't standing on the stage. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I just think the priggishness thing, it may be a line in the sand for some people that they don't agree with her values. But for me, it's not a criticism because it's an inherent part of the character that Jane Austen conceived, that she has all these internal rules and things she believes is right and she's constantly measuring herself against them. Did we want to just also talk about doormat Fanny? You know, the way people say, I don't like Fanny because she's such a doormat. Because psychologically, she's been treated like a doormat for her whole life. I think it's the opposite. She's got to get on in this world. And there's Fanny who gets so active. Fanny's always doing things. I suppose you could say she's not prepared to be confrontational. No. When it's something like Edmund wanting to use his horse to let Mary Crawford ride rather than Fanny, Fanny won't stand up for herself in things like that. But she will resist extreme pressure. You know, the amount of pressure that's put on her by everybody to marry Henry Crawford, if she was a true doormat, she would have given in to that. Once she'd realised that Sir Thomas thought she should have accepted it. And no other Jane Austen heroine is put under that level of pressure. You get it a bit in the theatricals, but that's sort of prefiguring of what's going to happen with Mary Crawford later. Yes. 
Well, the only other thing I really wanted to say about Fanny that I may or may not have said it in earlier episodes, I can't precisely remember, is that, you know, a lot of people put her next to Elizabeth Bennet and they find her wanting. And they also put Mary next to Elizabeth Bennet and say Mary's like Elizabeth. But just looking at the Fanny-Elizabeth comparison, I actually don't think that's very helpful when we're thinking about Fanny. Because I think that Jane Austen has two types of heroine and Fanny Price is the other type. And this was kind of the basis of my honours essay all those years back when I was an undergraduate, which is that you've got Elizabeth Bennet, Emma Woodhouse, and even Catherine Morland. They're these sprightly, outgoing heroines, and the plotline of the book shows them learning from their mistakes and growing. And then on the other side, you've got Eleanor Dashwood and Anne Elliot and Fanny Price. And these are much quieter characters. They don't have the outgoing wit and personality of those other three. But also, these are the characters who don't actually make mistakes and they don't undergo growth in the book because they follow this completely different storyline because each one of them is in the situation of being in love with a man they can't have. And in my honours thesis, I called this the Patience on a Monument plot and I compared it to Viola in Twelfth Night who talks about she sat like Patience on a Monument smiling at grief. So what you've got is that Elizabeth and Emma and Catherine, they do all briefly experience this thinking they've lost the man they love. But for Eleanor and Fanny and Anne, it's the essence of their story. And they don't need to grow because they're already self-aware and observant, more so than the other three characters. So what instead we're watching in the book is their strength under suffering and how they survive it. But I think one of the amazing things about Jane Austen is that all three characters are in the same situation and they respond in fundamentally the same way and yet they're all completely, completely different. And I'm not going to pretend that I like Fanny best because I like Anne Elliot best. And so do I. And I do think, and this comes back to what you were saying with the Lionel Trilling Grace of Difficulty thing, that for Fanny, she is struggling so much harder than the other two to behave in an appropriate manner and to regulate her thoughts and emotions. And so I just think people say... She's not like Elizabeth Bennet, so she's a failure as a character. No, she's not like Elizabeth Bennet, and that is deliberate on Jane Austen's part. And she's not Anne Elliot, she's not my favourite, but she is so not a failure as a character. Yeah. To me, and obviously it's just a personal response. I agree with what you were saying there. But my last bit is, again, the way she's interpreted those groups like yeah. Tony Tanner and Marvin Mudrick, the Tory critics trying to put the morality in the middle. Yeah. Some of them that dislike Fanny and they dislike the plot because they say Fanny triumphs, but she doesn't. Fanny dominates Mansfield. Fanny doesn't dominate Mansfield. She's off living at the parsonage. Mm. She has quite a modest reward. The only person she triumphs over is Mrs Norris mm. because she picks up her position. Mm. Well, I want in this section to try to unpick Jane Austen's beliefs about principle and education, the beliefs that underpin her explanations of Sir Thomas's problems with his children. We've already talked about the importance of principle in the gulf between Edmund and Mary and in Fanny's objections to Henry Crawford. But in these final chapters, they figure large in Jane Austen's cautionary tale of Sir Thomas and his failure to inculcate principles in his children, especially Mariah. 
the link between education and principle is raised quite early in the book when Jane Austen is describing the early education of the Bertram children, where she says, It is not very wonderful that with all their promising talents and early information, they should be entirely deficient in the less common acquirements of self-knowledge, generosity and humility. In everything but disposition, they were admirably taught. Sir Thomas did not know what was wanting because, though a truly anxious father, he was not outwardly affectionate and the reserves of his manner repressed all the flow of their spirits before him. And Jane Austen brings up the subject again at Southerton when she's talking about poor Julia having to stay with Mrs Rushworth. The politeness which she'd been brought up to practice as a duty made it impossible for her to escape, while the want of that higher species of self-command, that just consideration of others, that knowledge of her own heart, that principle of right, which had not formed any essential part of her education, made her miserable under it. Sir Thomas only comes to realise this problem after Maria's elopement. In his final meditation on this subject, he comes to believe it was because he had no notion of their true dispositions that he made this mistake. He had meant them to be good, but his cares had been directed to the understanding and manners, not the disposition, and of the necessity of self-denial and humility, he feared they had never heard from any lips that could profit them. Bitterly did he deplore a deficiency, which now he could scarcely comprehend to have been possible. Wretchedly did he feel that with all the cost and care of an anxious and expensive education, he'd brought up his daughters without their understanding their first duties or his being acquainted with their character and temper. What I want to point out now is that this belief that education should be adapted to the child's disposition was actually an aspect of education that was current at the time. I've been having another look at Maria Edgeworth, the novelist who wrote Castle Rackrent and was admired by Jane Austen, with her father. I think I talked about them before with the Rousseauist side of their education. They wrote these books called The Parent's Assistant and so on, but in some of her sort of novels that are half children's books, half real novels. She gives accounts of education that are sort of a bit more realistic. In one of these books that I'm quite fond of, called The Good French Governess, this governess comes into this fashionable family and deals with the children. So she looks at the way the governess analyses the dispositions of her four pupils and takes three different approaches to teaching them. Uh, there's one of the girls who's got a very good memory, very proud of herself, thinks she knows everything, and the governess explains to her that she should be doing more thinking and so on. And she's got a younger sister who is very despondent about herself, and Madame de Rossier interests her in serious books and feeds her more and more serious books until she's able to converse properly with her sister 
And then one of the most interesting parts is the little boy who's been being taught to read by one of the servants and she's put him completely off reading and he doesn't want to do anything to do with books or reading. So Madame de Rossier takes him to a rational toy shop Mm -hmm. and buys him some rational toys, which you have to put together by matching A with B and B (laughs) with C and they have instructions telling you what to write and that encourages him to read and she also manages to change his whole disposition as a result of good treatment. Mm. But Mariah Edgeworth sees this sort of approach as also appropriate for moral training. In the story that follows the good French governess, She describes two girls, one left by her card-playing mother, to a French governess who follows very much the Aunt Norris plan of praise and indulgence, while the other girl is carefully trained by her mother. At the age of 14, they appear very similar, but once they are out, Lady Augusta, with the card-playing mother, emerges as a mercenary flirt, while Helen Temple... The other one is modest and maidenly and I think, but I've only skimmed the end, captures the matrimonial prize (laughs) in this story. I think that's where Jane Austen and Sir Thomas, that fits in with their ideas. These are ideas that were around. Yep. But what I want to look at now is whether actually Jane Austen's plots support what she says has happened, that principles are only internalised by people taught to think on serious subjects. Mm. If so, why are Jane and Elizabeth principled when Lydia isn't? Did Mrs Bennet do the right thing with the older girls and not with the others? Why are Fanny and Edmund principled in their teens and the other young Bertrams not? Why do Julia and Tom turn back to these principles after the shock of Mariah's flouting them? Why are the Crawfords, who have not even been instructed theoretically in their religion, as the Bertram children were, so attracted when in Edmund and Fanny they encounter people who do actually bring their principles into daily life? Mm. In fact, Jane Austen, through Sir Thomas's thoughts, comes up with a new explanation for admirable principles that seems to contradict so much of what the book seemed to be saying when he meditates on the Price family. In the general well-doing and success of the other members of the family, all assisting to advance each other and doing credit to his countenance and aid, Sir Thomas saw repeated and forever repeated reason to rejoice in what he had done for them all and acknowledge the advantage of early hardship and discipline and the consciousness of being born to struggle and endure. Well, up till now, we've been given this appalling picture of the Price household. Mm. In every way, much the opposite of Mansfield. And yet, it is in this chaotic environment, not in calm, disciplined Mansfield, that the children learn to govern their inclinations and tempers by the sense of duty which can alone suffice. All three of them that he's thinking about, though, Fanny and Susan and William, they start out in the Price household and then they're taken away somewhere else where they get guidance from someone else. Because, you know, Michael said in the Navy talk, 
that someone was kind of responsible for their development. And in Mansfield, Fanny had access to the governess. But what you see particularly, I think, is Susan. You see the Susan who has only been in the Price household. And she doesn't have proper governance over herself until Fanny comes in and teaches her, recognises that her impulses are right, but her behaviour is wrong. And so I think what we're seeing there is that they have these hardships, but then when they're taken away and transplanted somewhere else, they are more receptive to a better way of thinking because of the hardships they've undergone. Whereas, well, to continue the planting metaphor, the hothouse ones who've only ever been in the hothouse yeah. don't respond as well because they've never known the hardship. But I don't think she's saying that if we just left them in the house in Portsmouth, they'd do okay. You do rather wonder, though I've sort of had this view of if Susan had stayed there, probably Susan would have married some young captain but she would by then have learned to organise her house properly. If she got a servant, she'd train her up to do things right. I'm not entirely comfortable with the idea that you can only grow up well if you've suffered hardship. I think you still have to say, no, Sir Thomas's children could have grown up better if he hadn't messed things up. I think an issue that all of the adaptations of Mansfield Park struggle with is the fact that in these last three chapters, so much of the action, which is some of the key material in the book, is delivered to Fanny at second hand. It doesn't happen on stage. Plus, of course, there's the thing that so outraged me as a 15-year-old, the fact that we don't get a big scene between Edmund and Fanny. Most of the other books at least give you a little bit more to go on, don't they? Yeah, even if they don't have a scene with full dialogue, we at least get the scene so there is a context that the filmmakers can then build on and add their own dialogue to. But in Mansfield Park, there's not even that. So starting with the 1983 version with Sylvester Latuzel and Nicholas Farrell, one thing I find really interesting about this one in terms of the Henry Mariah stuff is, of course, in the book... We're going along with Fanny. We have this quite elusive letter from Mary Crawford and then she doesn't learn the truth until her father is reading it from the newspaper. But in this 1983 version, I talked last time, I think, about we have a scene in London that shows Henry and Mariah encountering each other and exchanging glances and then going into a separate room and they kiss. And then after that, Fanny receives Mary's letter. So... At the point at which Fanny is still unsure about what has actually happened, we, the viewer, have the full picture so that when Mr Price is reading out from the newspaper, we already know the story, which is not the case in the book. The other thing that I wanted to talk about with this version is how they wind it up. And what happens is we have a scene where Edmund comes to Fanny in the library on a wet Sunday and he tells her of his last meeting with Mary Crawford and then, of course, there's a cut to showing the scene And then after that's finished, it cuts to a scene of a village street. The voiceover is a letter from Fanny to William. She talks about how Mrs Norris went to live with Mariah. While this happens, we're panning down the street and we're seeing people walking towards a church. And she talks about how Julia and Yates are married. That sounds lovely. And then she says, and today I married Edmund. And it cuts to the scene in the church with the marriage. 
Then the next thing we have is a scene with Edmund and Fanny walking out of the parsonage to a chair in the garden, and they've got a pug with them. So even though Fanny didn't marry Henry, she married Edmund, Lady Bertram has still given them a pug, which I thought was so oh, sweet. That just sounds as though it's been scripted by somebody who truly loved the book. <laughs> so it finishes with them sitting down in this chair in the garden with the pug at their feet, and Fanny says the only thing that could make her happier is when William can pay a visit to Mansfield. Yes, so moving on to the 1999 version with Frances O'Connor and Johnny Lee Miller. In this one, Fanny has come back because of Tom's illness and Henry and Mary have arrived for no readily apparent reason. So they're staying in the parsonage. And Henry and Mariah meet each other in the library and Henry says that Fanny has rejected him. Then Fanny is in her room and she gets up and she walks into Mariah's room and Henry and Mariah are having sex. Oh, Right. She then goes to Edmund, who immediately goes to Henry and Mariah. And this is interesting, I think. You may remember one of the things I particularly liked in this production was instead of Henry reading Shakespeare, Henry reads the extract from The Sentimental Journey, the quote, which, of course, in the book happens at Southerton, about I cannot get out, said the starling. That also featured in this production when he sent the box of birds to Fanny in Portsmouth. Well, in this scene, when Edmund is confronting Henry and Mariah, Mariah says, don't look at me like that. Rushworth is a fool. I can't get out. I can't get out. Yes. Which, what you were saying before, there's not enough backstory given as to why it happened. Well, they have obviously identified the same problem because they have given this backstory. Henry is still smarting from Fanny's rejection because this is the one where Fanny accepts him in Portsmouth and then changes her mind. Yes. So they've upped Henry's sense of rejection And they've made explicit Mariah's feeling of being trapped in her marriage. I think they've really worked hard to give a lot more psychological realism to that affair than maybe Jane Austen did. And in a scene that contains Mary, Edmund, Fanny, Sir Thomas and Mrs Norris, Mary says to all of them that Henry and Mariah were fools to do it under this roof and she has a plan for what has to be done. And Mary says to all of these people present, including Sir Thomas, that if Tom doesn't recover, Edmund will be the heir. It's much They get more, that in. They get it in, but in a much more how on earth did Mary think this was okay sort of way yes. compared to writing it in a letter. There's a voiceover showing Mrs Norris and Mariah in the cottage saying what happened. Then it cuts to the voiceover saying Henry and Mary found partners who shared their more modern sensibilities. Oh, right. We actually have a scene between Edmund and Fanny where Edmund says, I've loved you all my life. And you know, Given that it's a scene that wasn't in the book and that they obviously wanted to have that sort of scene, I thought it was quite a nice scene the way it was done. And then the final, final scene is Edmund and Fanny walking in the parsonage and he tells her that he has spoken to John Ward at Edgerton's and they're willing to publish her writing. (laughs) Because this is the one where Fanny has been writing a lot of Jane Austen's Juvenilia. So I I don't particularly like this adaptation because I I see what it's trying to do, but I think it doesn't do it in a particularly sophisticated way. But allowing for that, I did think some of the aspects of these closing scenes worked quite well. And I really did like Mariah saying, I can't get out, because that is, I think, a really good extrapolation of what was happening with Mariah. Yes. And I thought it was delivered really quite well. Then we have the 2007 version with Billy Piper and Blake Ritson. And you may remember, this is one that doesn't even have Portsmouth. They didn't have the budget for Portsmouth. So Fanny has just been at Mansfield the whole time. 
So they've all come home with Tom who is sick, but then Sir Thomas has to go to London. And then he arrives home and he calls Lady Bertram and Edmund and Fanny and Mrs Norris and Mary Crawford, who just happens to be at Mansfield at the time, into a room. And he explains what has happened with Henry and Mariah and says that he became aware of his errors too late. Then we have a scene of Edmund and Mary alone together. A lot of the dialogue is what Edmund relates in the book. Although that is where, again, they have Mary saying at this point that if the worst happens with Tom, Edmund and Mary will be in a position to welcome Henry and Mariah to Mansfield. So then we have Mrs Norris going off with Mariah to another house. This one also wanted to actually show Edmund falling in love with Fanny. So whereas the early BBC one didn't actually show the process at all, it just jumped to the marriage. Yes. And the 1999 one, you didn't see him undergoing the transition from Mary to Fanny, but you did have quite a nice scene of him declaring his love. In this one, they're actually trying to show the noticing Fanny, and I don't think it's particularly well done. Yeah. You see him suddenly looking at Fanny through new eyes, and there's music in the background. Uh And then finally, there's a scene in the garden where he declares his love. But in this case, Lady Bertram masterminds it because she sends Fanny to pick lavender, and then she sends Edmund after her. When they meet up outside, Edmund declares his love. And Lady Bertram sees them through the window and calls Sir Thomas and says, now perhaps Edmund will at last think to ask Fanny to marry him. Fanny has been in love with Edmund since she was a little girl. And then they have a wedding in the garden. (laughs) And then Edmund and Fanny dance the waltz together. So that one, again, took another slightly different approach to how to deal with that last chapter, but also did that same thing that 1999 did with Mary saying to Edmund's face about if Tom dies. Well, it would have been a bit roundabout. Yeah, to have it in. Yes. And then, of course, there's a 2014 web series from Mansfield with Love. This actually turns the end of the plot around a little bit because Ed and Mary break up because, as I said last time, Mary has made a video in which she said to the internet that Edmund would be better than Tom and maybe Tom should die. So that's why they have a big argument and split up. But as part of that argument... Mary then says she doesn't see why it's so unforgivable. After all, they all forgive Rhea for her and Henry. Yeah. Which is like a bombshell because there hasn't been anything about this yet. Although it comes out Rory Rushworth had just found out and Rhea goes to Henry and he's not there. He's gone somewhere. So Henry's even worse in this than he is in the book. And another big difference that I actually really, really like is that we have a scene of Ed unburdening himself to Frankie and... And then he tries to kiss her and she won't let him. She says that he doesn't love her. It's just a rebound thing. And that's not enough for her. Essentially, I deserve better than this. And she orders him out of her room, which I think is great. She says she's not going to be a doormat anymore. Of course, in the end, they do get together. And it's only about a month later because obviously they're on a time frame. But I did like the fact that when he tries to go to her on the rebound, she's not having any of it. I think that was really good. And then how the rest of it wraps up is that Julia and Yates go off to travel around the world, starting in Scotland. And Tom kind of seems to be on the road to getting his act together. Mrs Norris is being sent to the other hotel that they own to manage there. And Rhea is also going to go there to become the events manager. 
Which nah. is not actually the same kind of punishment as it is in the book. You do actually see the rest of the family kind of accepting Rhea and welcoming her back. I mean, apart from anything else, that gives her something to do. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't just have to live alone yeah. with Mrs Norris in a cottage. No. Yeah. Frankie gets Mrs Norris's job at Mansfield, which I think is kind of a nice call-out to her ending up at Mansfield Parsonage where Mrs Norris used to be. Yeah. But she also gets accepted into uni. So when the series finishes, she's working at Mansfield in a more senior position, but she will be going to uni. The series finished in November 2015. But then in May 2020, they released a 20-minute video called From Lockdown with Love, which... <laughs> They were probably all individually in lockdown, but they got most of the cast back on little video calls with Frankie. You remember earlier we talked about Celia's House, the D.E. Stevenson book, and then I kind of stopped talking about that because it didn't really follow the plot. But just to hark back to the ending, there's a passing reference to the Henry equivalent having an affair with a married woman, but it's not really that big a deal and it's not anyone in the, yes. in the central group. But the reason that the Mary character breaks off from the Edmund character, she finds out that he is not going to inherit the property. She had always thought as the eldest son he would inherit. When she learns that he wouldn't, she basically dumps him. Because all the way through, she has been presented as this scheming, manipulative person. Not the Mary that we love from Mansfield no. Park. It's just that different perception of Mary. Yes, yes. And I just wanted to briefly reflect on those four film adaptations, the 1983 BBC miniseries, the 1999 movie, the 2007 TV movie, and then the web series. And I feel, on the whole, probably the one that most captures the spirit of Mansfield Park would be the 1983 BBC miniseries. Yeah. It does suffer from the sort of static, somewhat unexciting nature of those BBC miniseries. Yeah. But it is the only one that really tried to be true to Fanny's character. Yeah. And overall, very faithful to the book, generally good performances, and the best Mrs Norris. Of all the adaptations, this one absolutely has the best Mrs Norris. And that was Anna Massey, right? Yes, that was yes. Anna Massey. Oh, well, she's a lovely actress anyway. Yeah. yeah. And my next favourite, honestly, would probably be the web series. Yeah. Because even though Frankie in the web series is not Fanny Price, she's an awful lot closer to Fanny Price than the other two. She has Fanny's lack of self-worth. She has Fanny's insecurities. Yeah. And she also has a sense of humour that is just not present in Fanny at all. Yeah. But, and also there are so, so many call-outs to the book in the web series and you really do feel it came from a place of love of the book. Whereas yeah. the other two... The 1999 one was trying to do something which I would have preferred them to do it and not call it Mansfield Park. And also, as I've said, I didn't actually think they did it particularly well anyway. And the 2007 one just, I felt, wasn't very good. So that's my overall perception <laughs> on the pop culture. <laughs> You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet. And me, Ellen. Now that we've finished Mansfield Park, we're going to be taking a bit of a break before starting our next book, which will be Emma. And I'm actually really looking forward to Emma because I think it is Jane Austen's technically most brilliant novel 
And yet it's also the one I reread least often because there are just things about it that I don't enjoy. So I'm really looking forward to going through it in detail and hopefully properly fully appreciating it for the first time. I'm the same with Emma. I remember bits of it with a great deal of pleasure, but I must say that I've reread it far, far fewer times. And on the other hand, I know for a great many people, Emma is their absolute favourite Jane Austen. And like I said, it is technically brilliant and I can absolutely see why people love it. And I'm hoping to even more get an understanding of that on this careful reread. Mm. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us for our Emma season.